This is Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Here's your host, Lockie Wills. G'day, hello and welcome to Sports Cutting Edge. Thank you very much for your company. We do this for the Australian Sports Technologies Network, ASTN, powering sport through innovation. You can check them out at astn.com.au. And this show, we celebrate the 10-year anniversary of ASTM. And we're joined by the founder, James Demetriou. James is one of the great success stories of modern Australia. In 1951, his mum and dad, Chrissy and Tony, came to Australia from Cyprus. Four years later, James was born the oldest of four boys. And in 1975, James became the first person of Hellenic background to represent the Essendon Football Club in the then VFL, now AFL. So, I mean, as a 19-year-old kid, to make it to the big league in your chosen sport, incredible. His career was coming along beautifully, and then the following year, 1976, it was cut down cruelly by injury. But what James did then is he fired up in a different direction. He went and got a law degree from Melbourne University. Um, James was actually studying law at the same time as playing footy. With footy gone, he doubled down on law and became the first person ever, actually, that had been to his high school, Newland, the first person from Newland to ever get a law degree. And not just any degree, one from... Melbourne Uni. Amazing. And over the last 40 years, James has carved out a grand career in law, commerce, sport, governance, and innovation. You know, there's a saying in football about the the best players are the ones that play a kick ahead of the play. In their mind, they can see things before they happen. James is like that on the footy field, and he's like that in life. 2012 beautifully evidences that point. Because James looks at the situation in terms of sports technology and sees the amazing opportunity, the potential for something special in this country. At that point in time, 10 years ago, the industry was worth $250 million. Now, as a consequence of James and ASTN and the role they have played to grow and foster sports tech businesses in Australia and help to propel them onto the international stage. That industry is now worth, keep in mind, was 250 mil. It's now worth $3 billion. $3 billion. It's so big, in fact, that now it accounts for 10% of Australia's overall sports economy. I mean, you think about that, Australia, sport, huge. Now, one in every $10 is a sports tech, sports innovation dollar. And that's just going to keep growing. I mean, we've already heard from the Queensland government, they want sports tech and Brisbane to be the sports tech, sports innovation hub of the world. So this industry, it's really just the beginning. And no doubt over the next 10 years, it's going to be James Demetriou and ASTN leading the charge. So sit back, relax. Up now, James Demetriou. We're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the Australian Sports Technologies Network. My great honour now to chat with the legend, the founder himself, Mr James Demetrio. James, thank you for your time. How do you feel? Um, very ecstatic tonight uh, and uh, relieved in one area. It's a bit like playing a grand final. Yeah. It's taken us 10 years to get there. So 
it's a great night to sort of celebrate, but it's, it's been a very, very long haul. Well, it has, and I love the, the grand final analogy because, you know, I want to talk about your life more broadly because it is one of the great stories of modern Australia. Your mum and dad, Chrissy and Tony, came to Australia from Cyprus, 1951. Four years later, you're born the oldest of four boys. You grew up in the northern suburbs. And I know your mum and dad had a fish and chip shop on Bell Street. And the bloke who used to bring in the potatoes one day bought in a pair of footy boots. And that started- He actually bought a football in, actually. He bought a footy in. And that starts a VFL career, AFL, as we say it in the modern parlance. Can I ask you, those years, the early days, growing up, your family, what sort of influence did that have on the man you are today? I think my parents instilled us in a very strong work ethic and they also had very strong values. Mm. So respect and trust, relationships, um, work ethic, education were really cornerstones of, mm. and modesty and humility. My mum was very strong on us not being outspoken. And so mm. those sort of went, you know, went all the way through us. Um, and you got to think we have four boys. So we had a, we were in a house behind the shop. Yeah. So there was only two bedrooms. Yeah. So you had four boys in one bedroom. Yeah. So you had two bunks, you know, one each, <laughs> one up Mutta. And you can just imagine what four boys were doing in it with bunks and everything from world championship wrestling, tag team and all of that sort of stuff. But life was the one thing we had. We had a, a great uh, family connections with cousins. And so there were picnics and yeah. other things. that we, And we didn't go out just by ourselves. We were normally groups of about 20 people yeah. and they had children as well. So that meant that we were playing sport all the time. It yeah. was either football, cricket or tennis, either at Donnybrook or yeah. at Elwood Beach and occasionally Bacchus Marsh as well. So, yeah, right. so these were great big days when we, so we grew up in an environment where family was absolutely number one yeah. and then, um, and the work ethic and the education really sort of went through the whole family in terms of our values. Well, work ethic, I mean, your career is a testament to that. Now, in terms of football, I want to take you back to round one, 1975, yeah. Windy Hill. Essendon, your club, playing St Kilda. Correct. You make your debut as a league footballer. Correct. 16 touches, you kick a goal, you beat the Saints by 69 points. What did that feel like? And you're the first player for Essendon of Hellenic background. Correct. What did it feel like to run out on Windy Hill as a league footballer? It was a culmination of a lot of hard work. I wasn't blessed with size, so I had to be, I had to work much harder than everyone else with my mm. speed and skills, etc. Mm. And also, I was run, I was at law school at Melbourne University at the same time. So here am I yeah. trying to, you know, do a full time, you know, study of a, a very decent degree yeah. at a great university, and then try to play football. So leading up to it, not much sleep yeah. the night before, yeah. um, and then playing over at Windy Hill that particular day. Yeah. Um, I always remember it was a sort of a bit of an overcast day, a bit of, you know, a bit of dampness in the air, and yeah. it was a very big crowd, and we played against some very good players, like there was Dietrich and Neil yeah. and all those sort of guys, George Young and everyone else mm-hmm. playing. Um, so it was a really, it was a, it was a really great uh, initiation, I suppose because you're playing one of the toughest teams in the league at that stage, yeah. and we blew them out of the park. And um, I always remember it because I, in that first quarter, when I hadn't got a touch for the first 10 minutes, um, Moss, Graham Moss, the Brownlow Medal and Ruckman, yeah. tapped a ball, and I was running at 100 miles an hour, yeah. and it just hit, my, hit me right there, and I was able to sort of hit Alan Noonan with a... A stab pass that almost knocked knocked his knocked his wind out of him. <laughs> so you know, kicking a goal out of it. So there was that, and then there was 
all the you know the tough guys like Robbie Muir mm. absolutely going ballistic out in the wing, wanting to hit everyone that moved, yep. and then getting chased by Carl Dittrich and Cowboy <laughs> Neal into the pocket. So you know we're talking about some really seventies were a very hard era. Yeah. So if you weren't fast and you got hit, you were hit, and it was head high stuff in those days. Yeah. So you know you're talking about a career that. I ended up with seven serious bad concussions out of football, three broken nose, a broken Jeez. leg, uh, a broken um, wrist, all playing league football and trying to do a law degree at the same time. So my, my life was pretty busy. I'd study, yeah. leave the university at 4.30 and then hop on a tram, the 59 tram down <laughs> Flemington Road up Mount Road yeah. off to the Essendon Footy Club. And then um, some of those early days, I used to ride my bike from home to training when I was home. So. God. Windy Hill to Pascoe Vale, and that was unheard of. So, yeah, so look, it was a great era. Des Tuddenham, he was yeah. he was a pretty hard taskmaster. Yeah. Um, Alan Noon and a few other great, Ken Fletcher and a few other guys. So it was really great. It was. It, I never thought I'd actually get there. So when I got there, I was, I was probably more shocked than than actually anticipating I'd earned it. Earned, earned it. Well, you know, I mean, it's the one thing that's constant that I'm hearing from you so far, just that bloody determination. Yeah. How proud were your mum and dad of you running out on Windy Hill that day? Do you remember chatting to them that night? What did they say? Well, not much because yeah. I think it was all just too much for them. But yeah. I mean, uh, you've got to remember, Andrew was the one that they followed a lot more because they'd retired, but they were still working. Yeah. So, so obviously what had happened is that, you know, I think they didn't actually come. And my mother only went to one football game and she never went ever again. Oh, Because that, so that was Andrew who got knocked out by Lee yeah. Matthews in one of the finals in 82. Yeah. So there was all of that. But that didn't worry me. I, I think my, my, my wife, who's my yeah. partner, 43 years, she, she came, which was great. Yeah. Uh, but in those days, it was almost like a blur. Yeah. I mean, you get to the ground. You know, we had, in those days, we had red shorts, not black or, or you know, black yeah, or... Right. Yeah, there's Tudnam wanted to give us red shorts and red boots. You know, it, was, it was obscene. It was, it was the 70s, right? Yeah. So, so um, but, but that was all right. I mean, my parents are pretty proud. Yeah. And, um, I got a photo with my partner at the time. So, yeah. Magic. But really, you know, in the end result, it was just, uh, for me, a big shock getting there. I got a lot mm. of great telegrams, but mm. finally got there and you know, I played, I think, seven games, nine games. Well, and that's the thing, your career cut short cruelly by injury the following season at Waverley Park, a game against Fitzroy, and there's a sprinkler sticking out of the ground. You fall over that, break your leg, and that's really the end of the league football career. But then the fact that you transition out of that, I can imagine, bitter disappointment, and then achieve so much. As a law degree at Melbourne University, you're the first person from your high school, Newland, to ever get a law degree. Um, can I ask you, that, the way that you then established yourself in law, in business, in commerce, can you talk us through that journey, those years through your 20s, yeah. your 30s? On that breaking the leg, the actually, it, had, it had a really bad side to it, yeah. but the good side of it was that I actually ended up having to be able to study yeah. For the full year, you know, I even had a, had a cast, a cast on her <laughs> and my, and my uh, walking sticks, etc., which yeah. was a bit difficult on some of the theatres, as you can imagine, yeah. in those days. No, I, no, I which in it's in those <laughs> days. Um, but I actually passed because I was carrying. You know, I did seven and a half subjects that year, and Jeez. and if I hadn't have uh, broken my leg, I don't think I would have. I would have got through. So yeah. in some respects, it was a blessing. Yeah. And and sport was something I loved as opposed to wanting to make it a profession. Yeah. Because a lot of the players I played didn't have professions to go to. Mm. So football was almost the sort of their whole the holy grail for them. Mm. Um, so then I finished law at Melbourne University, did my articles, worked with a former Essendon director. 
um, at his firm for a number of years, mm. got pretty sick of it, um, and then uh, did a part-time teaching at a couple of private schools, mm. um, which sort of showed me what the other side was like and yeah. wasn't what I liked. So I then started my own practice, and it was a very successful practice for a number of years. Um, I sold it, and then I joined a, a major law firm in Melbourne, and then um, basically headed up a, a banking and finance section of this law firm. Um, tried to become a partner of the firm, but in the 90s, um, a partner coming from the wrong side of the, the tracks and the wrong school and the wrong colour couldn't earn me a partnership. I got an extra $100,000 salary, but they weren't prepared to make me a partner. So I decided to move on, and then yeah. I started my own practice specialising in about six or seven very large Asian clients mm. and becoming not so much a lawyer but more of an advisor to them. I yeah. learned a lot out of that and had a lot of tripping around Asia. And uh, at the same time, I got a job uh, part-time writing detailed research reports for the federal government on yeah. Australian issues, you know, market entry into Asian countries. Yeah. And then in 97, 98, um, I joined the Essendon board, which we'll get to in a moment, um, but got very ill and yeah. I was out of work for almost two years. So I took a sabbatical, yeah. went back and did an executive master's at Melbourne again yeah. in business um, and then had another year off. And then I got a scholarship to Anderson Business School at UCLA, which is where I learned all about technology and yeah. marketing and how to pitch to raise money, etc. And then from then on, really, my career has been very heavily involved in startups, technology, yeah. commercialisation. And I learned a lot from that because I also learned that Australian companies weren't prepared properly to be able to, you know, commercialise their products globally. Yeah. And that was one of the valuable lessons I learned, which I took back to the ASDN. Uh, and you've certainly brought that to life. I want to pull uh, one point you made there, the fact that there were those barriers. Mm. Obviously, Australia you know, has changed a lot since your mum and dad came in 1951 and continues to do so. What you did with Sports Without Borders with your son, Tom, in 2006 was all about bringing greater equality and opportunity to people from diverse backgrounds. Can I ask, you know, growing up in that time in Australia, how much did that inform you and who you are today and also the way in which you've tried to bring about equality and bring down barriers so that other people don't have to yeah. sort of suffer at the other end of that like you Good did? Good question. Um, we were fortunate because my dad had the shop. Everyone knew my dad. Yeah. <laughs> Basically yeah. the whole area of Pasco Vale. Yeah. And they, I'd been seen, I was, I was playing very good football at my primary school, yeah. Coburg North, and I had a great headmaster, Jack Ware, yeah. who really looked after us. And um, then I was, my dad was approached in the shop by one of the customers who happened to be on the board of the, the Pasco Vale Football Club, yeah. and they got me over to play at Pasco Vale. So sport becomes a very inclusive thing. And yeah. what it does, I, I always use, to open yourself to the Australian culture and psyche, yeah. someone's got to give you a window or open a door into that. Yeah. And sport is one of those openers. And so I was able to, and the whole family, we all played at Pasco Vale, mm -hmm. very welcoming. Um, it was tough, but at least we'd broken down a lot of the barriers. We yeah. were very good. All of us were top-notch you know, at football and cricket in those days. Yeah. And so we were accepted you know, greatly by the club. And, and I thought that was the norm. But when I look back, there was probably, for the four of us getting through, there's probably another four or five hundred who missed out and couldn't play sport yeah. in Australia. Because people have got to remember this. It was, we had a white Australia policy in Australia from 1880 to 1972, which mm. was repealed by the, the Whitlam government. Mm. 
So you can just imagine what Australia was like. It was, a, it was an Anglo-Celtic country, and then we had a whole lot of migrants who hit this place in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, racism and ignorance was pretty well you know, front and centre. Yeah. So sport was the thing that actually got us across that line, accepted and everything else. Yeah. And I thought that was the norm. So, and I thought that was something that every Australian child had the right to. Mm. Real through 2006, my son Tom is doing a, a postgraduate at, at New Media at Swinburne. Um, he's been asked to do a, a, a campaign on non-for-profits. Yeah. And I'm, I'm getting a phone call from my friend George Lukakis, who's the chairman of the uh, Victorian Multicultural Foundation, yeah. who's saying, James, we've got some problems. We've got all these refugees, newly arrived migrants, who can't play sport in this country. And uh. I said, why? Well, they've got no money to pay for the fees and they haven't got any gear. Yeah. So I said to Tom, why don't we make the campaign for your, your um, yeah. assignment, um, this. And then from there it grew. We got a, a number of grants. Mm. Yeah, we rolled for And we had the most important thing is we got this program called SIX, which was uh, inclusiveness through sport, so effectively. Yeah. And what we were able to do is put 40,000 kids and their parents vol and volunteer mm. into sporting clubs with mm. scholarships from you know, paying their fees or buying them boots um, or buying them their clothes, yeah. um, and, you know, and that was a you know, million dollars plus helping these kids. And these were refugee kids from, you know, sort of um, Eastern Africa, East Africa, the Middle East, Myanmar, some of the worst, Cambodia, some of these places that people had really suffered from, mm. and they couldn't play sport. And the way you look at it is if you can go to Sydney, in Western Sydney, there's a whole bunch of kids playing on an oval, and there's 400 refugee kids yeah. sitting on the sideline watching because they couldn't play at the club. Yeah. We went to the local RSL and we said, why don't you support these kids? And the local RSL said, well, their parents don't play the pokies and drink, so we can't support them. So we put a lot of money in yeah. and we also gave Craig Foster a fair bit of yeah. money to help do the sport, the soccer in, in, um, in Sydney. Mm. So we did all that. And so in effect, what we did is we broke down some serious barriers we got all these kids in there. Mm. Plus, I think we also shamed government and people to say, like particularly soccer, the most expensive sport in Australia, it's basically now vacancy for middle-class kids who can afford to have their kids play soccer in this country, whereas football and other things were much cheaper, and we were able to support kids with them to be able to play sport. And it's still a problem. The cost of sports, yeah. we backed 10% um, of those kids, those 4,000, 400 of those kids, we actually got them into international clubs. A couple of kids to Arsenal, yeah. NBA, and a whole bunch of stuff, all from scholarships we gave. But the average kid was getting paid 13000 if they were an elite sports person. Yeah. So we backed um, the Australia's 800-metre champion. Um, so we backed Basha Hooley, we backed yeah. him. So we backed a whole lot of kids that we thought, out of the 10%, and, and we backed those kids to sort of get an elite level. Isn't that just tremendous? You know, and it's like you're paying it for because the bloke who bought the potatoes bought a 41 day to you, Correct. and you go and do this with Correct. your son Tom. And you never forget that because yeah, I bet. Harold, Harold uh, gave us um, a, a second hand football that he got from the Brunswick Football Club. Yeah. Now, that football never touched the ground, it was polished every night. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. why that was important was we used to play day and night sport at the Woolworths car park on the weekend. Because yeah, right. in those days, supermarkets closed at one o'clock. So from one o'clock yeah. to six o'clock at night on su Sunday, it was football, cricket, 
on a on on a you know a hard surface, right? <laughs> the bitumen. The bitumen. So we learnt one thing: one, we never dropped the ball, yeah. and two, we never went to <laughs> went to ground. Keep your feet. Keep your feet. <laughs> now that was skin. that was important because in the end, that was one of the reasons why both myself and Andrew, in particular, yeah. and my brother Viv, who was another great footballer, um, we 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 were exceptionally one one pick up all the time. Yeah, we didn't have any issues with our ball handling. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Now, um, you've also had a storied career in, you know, council, in politics. You were on the Coburg City Council. You're an office bearer for Bob Hawke when he was the Prime Minister. He's electorate of Wills in the ALP branch there. And then with the Essendon Football Club, you helped to get their governance in order in the 90s. Can you tell us about those experiences and how they've helped you as we move into talking about ASTN, how they've helped to expand your mind about all the dimensions of government, of sport and the interaction yeah. of the two? Good, because my dad and mum, particularly my dad, was a, a unionist, so very much we were very strong Labor supporters mm. and he was very strong. And my mum and dad, because they come from a colony called Cyprus, mm. who went to become a republic, they left because they wanted to come to Australia where they thought you know, they might become a republic here. So yeah. my parents were republicans and unionist and left wing very early in the piece. So yeah. that was that was instilled all the way through it where, you know, it was give people an equal opportunity more so than anything else. Mm. So that shaped us. And so what happened in when Malcolm Fraser got in in 75, um, you know, and by 81, I pretty well got sick of what the Liberals were doing in Australia. So I joined the Labor Party and um, and got a, you know, on the city council, but also within the actual wheels of the ALP, I, the factions, I joined the right faction and I ended up getting a job as a secretary of the mm -hmm. Fed, FEA, which is the Federal Electoral Assembly for Wills, with Bob Hawke as being the, mm -hmm. the Prime Minister at the time, you know, so that was great. And that led us obviously to go to Canberra a number of times and meet some of the great people like the Keatings and all mm -hmm. those sort of people as well. Um, so you learn from them what a vision for Australia is, you know, yeah. from Hawke and Keating. Yeah. Reform, competition, footprint into Asia, bring everyone up at the same time and yeah. never leave anyone behind, put a safety net behind people. And so all those things carry through. Now, by 1986, I could have become a, a politician and was offered, by, yeah, 86 to 88, I was offered two positions, either a state and then eventually a federal one. Um, but I'd moved away and I didn't want to go into politics. I had a long talk to my wife in 85 mm -hmm. and I had three kids at that stage and I wasn't prepared to give up family and anything yep. for going to politics. And it was the right decisions because the people that took those positions, you know, both divorced now and so it was a very difficult time yeah. up in Canberra coming back to, to Melbourne all the time. Yeah. But all of that kept my values going and so you can understand from what you're hearing is that um, a very strong Labor supporter and uh, really disliked the Liberal Party. <laughs> so, um, so it's carried through. And I was also doing law in 1975 yeah. on the 11th of the 11th, 75, yeah. Kerr's Kerr. Yeah. And I was doing constitutional law as well. Jeez. And Gareth Evans was my lecturer, who ended up becoming yeah, a Minister yeah. for Government under Hoare. So you can just imagine what I thought of the Liberal Party in 75 when there was a mini-coup, basically, that ended up taking over because the Governor-General made the decision and it wasn't elected, so mm. we ended up doing... And that sort of all the way through was basically telling me mm. that those people who had this background of private school and privilege were the people that were we had to change and ensure that we brought everyone up at the same time and, mm. it, and everything was an e equal playing field. 
Extraordinary. Such tumultuous times, the dismissal of 1975. All right, let's fast forward to 2012. So you've done this work at UCLA, one of the most prestigious tertiary organisations in the world. You've got that, that gearing of your mind around innovation technology. What was it that inspired you to actually do something in that space in Australian sports tech? So in 2001, after the scholarship, I started working for a startup here. Okay. And I got this, that's, that's how I actually, I went back to UCLA. And the problem was, I realised with a whole lot of other companies that come over, how Australians were so ill-prepared for technology commercialisation and the inability to be able to pitch and raise money to people in the yeah. United States. The United States had, you know, it's got three generations of commercialisation in a true sense. Yep. Australia was really just starting mm. and we were really not good at it. Mm. And so I'm sitting there watching these 20 people try to pitch to these United States, you know, sort of VCs and other people and it was an embarrassment. And I came back and I thought, well, this has got to change. In what way was it an embarrassment? What were we lacking? Lacked knowledge on, you know, basically the pathway, how it all works. Yeah. We lacked the tools to be able to do this sort of stuff. Yeah. And we didn't have a lot of market research and we just didn't know a lot of things about the whole process, about taking an idea right through to a global company, the series of raisings you need to do from seed, series A, series B, series C, didn't understand about what an exit was. Mm. They just didn't understand all that intricacy. And more importantly, they didn't understand the word differentiation. People mm. need to understand that, that a startup that's successful is 20% technology and 80% business model. Yeah. And that's very important because you've got to differentiate yourself. Yeah. And so we didn't know how to differentiate ourselves. So one of the books they gave us over there was a Moore's book called Crossing the Chasm. Okay. I still have the book. Right. And I still got pages 84 to 85 pencil because in there is the secret source formula, right. which is I still preach it to this very day about how they have at the 32nd, you know, so basically saying my company is ABCD that does so and so. It overcomes the current problems of ABCD, which these companies propens, and it, our, our company is much different because it does ABCD. Yeah, right. And it's a, it's a 30 second pitch. Yeah. And, and they didn't even know that. So I came back and I thought, this has got to change. And then in 2010 11, I started doing a little bit of consultancy with some sports tech companies mm. that down in Geelong, mm. and they asked me to go to a workshop in October 11, and Professor Jerry Engels was taking the workshop. Mm. I've still got the, the, the agenda and the minutes to this day. Yeah, right. And so from there, though, but you could see there were a whole lot of companies there. Yes, they were okay, and they were, you know, some of them are lifestyle, but others were starting to really go, like Catapult was yeah. there. But there was still no one who showed leadership. And a lot of my leadership in everything I've done has been an accidental leadership where people have sat there and said, what do we do now? And someone's, well, being the oldest of my family, the attitude is you've just got to take it on yeah. and show the leadership. Mm. So I said, look, I'll take it on. I'll become your first founding chair. And I then had Kate Lundy, was the Minister for Sport. Mm. Fortunately, I knew Kate from my days of Sports Without Borders. Okay. She was the Minister for Multiculturalism. Yeah, right. So that was great. So when I went to her and I said, this is what we want to do, she said, I'll see what I can do. She got that money corralled from Prime Minister and Cabinet within 26 days. Jeez. We made an application and 26 days later, we got a grant letter saying we're going to go. Because like everything in government, 
in April and May, there's always spare pots of money that the, the, the yeah. public servants haven't spent. So we were able to get that initial seed funding in 2012 mm. and, and we went from there. It's an amazing journey you've been on because when you started this process in 2012, through that 26 days, you know, the magic that came to fruition, the industry in Australia is worth about $250 million. Yep. The latest report now that we can reveal, the industry in this country, $3 billion. Correct. $3 billion off the back of 250 in the space of 10 years, in no small part thanks to you and your team. Tell us what that means. Like, in, in tangible terms, how does that feel, the fact that you've been able to grow it in the way you have you and your team to bring this industry up? Sports technology now accounts for 10% of Australia's overall sports industry. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I go back to my parents' values that, you know, one of the things you are doing is always paying forward. Yeah. So you know, my parents used to share this, this uh, saying with me that, you know, we are here to be able to plant trees that eventually we will never see the shade of. Yeah, right. right. So, like that, that. so that was what the philosophy was. So I look back now and I can say, well, look, you know, how many people are privileged enough and, you know, and blessed to be a, a custodian that's taking an industry from here to here yeah. in 10 years and building an industry? People can build companies, but people rarely build an industry sector in a country. Spot on. So we were able to build, I had a great team. Craig, Craig um, Hill was our founding chair, uh, CEO, did a great job. Mm -hmm. He was the builder with mm -hmm. me. And we basically, and you remember, in those 10 years, especially for the first eight years, mm. there was only three people that put this together. Yeah, right. Three people. I was an unpaid volunteer chair. Yeah, right. Craig was the only one paid, and then we had two or three and a few board members, and we put an industry together with three. So it's a story about ordinary people yeah. doing extraordinary things. And that's the story. And effectively, we were on our knees in 2016-17 because we really, and we got, because by that stage, Craig had been burnt out. He'd done a fantastic job. Mm. We got Rachel Piastri to come in and consolidate everything. And then in 2017, eight very momentous decisions. We got, um, we got John uh, Danaher, an old friend of mine, major in the army, great at people management yeah. and leadership. He came in and steadied the ship totally. Yeah. And he also knew how to say no to people, which is good. Very yeah. important to be able to say no every so often. Mm. And then Martin Schlegel and John Persico came on and that gave us new blood, new impetus, and they were real workers. Mm. And that was, and they were able then, we were able to get some grants. Launch Fic were also very responsible for giving us that initial grants in 2016. Yeah. Very important Launch Fic. Yeah. Um, and they gave us the accelerator, the pre-accelerators. And then what we did is we, the other most important thing was in 2013 we brought over Steve Blank, billionaire, you know, great um, uh, proponent of the Lean Launch App methodology, mm -hmm. Professor Jerry Engel, and they helped us build the playbook, the playbook to win mm -hmm. globally. So we started our um, phrase called born global or die local. Yeah. So we changed the mindset from, from, you know, lifestyle companies to global companies from day one. And that is one of the reasons that you saw this huge directory, because the conference where we brought them over, we had almost 800 people come to that conference mm. and they were taught by the best people for four days what it's like to do this in America yeah. and how you do it in your region. 
Well, you've got some great examples of that. I mean, you think Nathan Rothschild, GTG oh, Network. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, you know, Melbourne startup that's gone and dominating fan engagement in the UK, USA and Europe. Uh, you even look at Bennett Merriman, Rostify. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a business from Ge- a garage in Geelong that's that right. are now, they do the Commonwealth Games, FIFA World Cup, Super Bowl, all the workforce management technologies. There are these great Aussies that are out there on the yeah, world stage. Right. Thanks to what you're doing to help them, you yeah. know, give that opportunity. Um, James, how big is is government, like the role of, of these funding, these lifelines, these ability to help? Like I, my understanding is that Victorian government has spent something like, I think it might be about $10 million and you've helped to turn that into about $500 million of economic productivity. In Victoria, it's yeah. $1.2 billion. $1.2 billion. So if you look at the whole figures, $3.2 billion, 120 company, we're now 660 companies. Yeah. Very important. There was 2,500 employees, now 10,000 employees. If we add in wagering and others, we get to 15,000 people. Yeah. So government is important for us. The state government of Victoria has put the, put the sunk the money in. We've returned, their return on investment's pretty good, mm. very good. We now want the feds to step up because in 2013, which was critical, we had won a big award for a grant for $10 million and the Abbott government completely took it off us when they got in. So we have effectively had to sort of do this with one arm behind our back. We want the feds now to step up and do what we should have done in 2013, which is to roll this out nationally, Mm -hmm. because we're the only group in this country that's got a playbook. From the moment a person has an idea to the moment they go global, there is a program of knowledge, knowledge products and trade missions. We started in 2016, we've had 18 trade missions into all these countries, which is the way that we've been able to break into mm. these countries and give them market entry modes, etc. So the tools, we gave them the tools, yeah. we gave them the VCs, so we gave them market access, we gave them funding access, and then we gave them the ability to uh, pick the right people yeah. to help them achieve what they wanted to do. And that's education and training and a hell of a lot of, you know, sort of, you know, leap of faith. Well, that's it. And Queensland government's uh, been good recently. Yeah, great. You know, yeah. uh, Sterling Hinchcliffe, Minister for Sport, they're speaking about the legacy that they want to create in Queensland around Brisbane 2032 to have yeah. Brisbane as the sports tech hub of the world. Yeah. So ASTM working arm in arm to achieve those goals. All right, James, before we go, tell us, all right, we're going to sit down again in 10 years. I'm going to hold you to it. Yeah. We're going to have this chat, maybe in the same room, um, and we're going to talk about what you've achieved in this next 10-year period, what do you see? What's happening in the next 10 years for sports tech in this country? Well, first of all, we're going to have some younger people also help us yeah. take over a lot of the roles. That's right. the first thing, because we've got to pay forward, right? right? Second thing, we're going to make sure that we have um, some great um, themes around women in sport. We've got to get more women in sports mm. tech. Very important. 50% of your population, and we've only got 5% of them in startups. It's, yeah. it's not right. We need to talk about environment, social and governance, ESG. Mm. It's the green stuff. We've got to talk about how ESG impacts the way we run events, the way we run our businesses. 70% of all funds in the world now are attracted to ESG systemised practice companies. Very Mm. important. So we've got to talk about those sort of big issues. We've got to talk about where where XR, VR, sports data, ethics is going to go in the next Mm. 10 years. So these are some of the big headline things that we've got. What is the impact now of AI, blockchain, XR and all of these other new technologies? What does that mean for sport participation? Will we have the Olympics the way we've got them in 40 years' time? Or will we have, you know, cyborgs or, you know, (laughs) machines doing stuff? So, you know, we're talking about new sports like drone racing. 
So what we're saying is that our next 10 years is a journey of uh, developing and rolling out the 10 themes, which is in our, which is in our report yeah. uh, over the next 10 years. It also means that you know, we're, we are going to leave a legacy for Australia, hopefully at 20, after 2032 Olympics. Mm. But more importantly, we need to build another six to 700 companies and mm. another two to 300 companies, of which we will have a, lot of, a number of unicorns as well. That's the vision. And, and uh, more importantly, we've got to increase the participation of Australians because yeah. we have a policy which is called, you know, in enhancing the human performance of people of all abilities. Yeah, 100%. We've got to take care of people that are disabled, 100%. all abilities. We've got to look after all that stuff. And we've also got to make sure that sport, fitness and health also impact into mental health to be able to assist people with their well-being going forward. These are all the sort of big issues I think that we will do in the next 10 years. I've got no doubt you will. Every time you have a vision, it comes to fruition. I've got some great people. Though. I mean, yeah. really, we've got some very good people. It's an amazing legacy, James. It's a lifetime of hard yakka and great results. Um, it's been a pleasure thank, to chat with you. you. Thank you very, you very much. much. Thank you very much. And thank you for your company as we celebrate the 10-year anniversary of ASTN. Wonderful to have James on the show. All right, that wraps us up. We'll catch you next week. You've been listening to Sports Cutting Edge for the Australian Sports Technologies Network. For more, jump online at astn.com.au.